and all. He is my everything. He's my beginning and my end. When I wake up in the morning, He's there. When I lay my head to rest, He is there. He is my champion. If you feel that way about Him, you ought to be casting your cares on Him right now. You should be giving Him your undivided attention. He has every answer to every question that you drug into this house this morning. His name is Jesus, high and mighty, counselor, Lord of lords, and prince of peace. He is your everything. Do you hear us this morning, devil? We already know who the king of glory is. You might as well lay down and back off because we are here to praise the king. One more time, put your hands together and give a shout of glory in this house. Hallelujah. Yes, Lord. Mighty God. Hallelujah. I'm gonna, if, since most of you are standing, I'm just going to go ahead and ask you to remain standing. I'm going to jump right into this because as that great theologian Jerry Reed once said, i got a long way to go and a short time to get there. Uh, I've been preaching a long time in this series uh, our sermons have been extended. I apologize for that, but there's just so much information uh, that I'm trying to share with you about these topics. And this morning uh, is one of those topics where I have, I have, and I'm not exaggerating, I have 17 pages of notes. But if I preach 17 pages of notes, we'll be here to Easter. So I'm consolidating 17 pages of notes into one sermon. So I'm going to skip a lot. There's a lot of information that I could share with you today, but all the information is not necessary if you get the basis of the sermon. So John chapter 4 is where I'm going to take my primary text from this morning, and it's a subject and a topic uh, that, that you're not familiar hearing in church, but it's a scripture passage that you're very familiar with. John chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, Therefore when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples... He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed. You got a Bible, underline that word needed or take note of that word. He needed to go through Samaria. I'm going to preach a long time on that one little verse right there. He needed to go through Samaria. Verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria which is called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of what town? Where was she from? She was from Samaria. She came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. Pay attention to that. I've never, all the times I've read this story, preached this story, taught this story, I never paid attention to that, but we're going to teach it this morning. His disciples had gone away into the city. What city? Sychar. Sychar was a Samaritan city. He'd sent them into a Samaritan city to buy food. Verse 9. Then the woman of where? Samaria said to him, How is it that you... Being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. We have read that, taught that, shouted about that, preached on that, preached right by that, ran by that a thousand miles an hour through the church through the years. 
But we're going to slow down today. And we're going to talk about something very, very important in the world that we're living in. And you're not used to hearing it in church. Cancel culture is that kind of a topic series where we're taking topics that are uncomfortable. Because one thing about God, he's never afraid to bring us face to face with challenging subjects. And this is one of those. Next week will be as well. There's going to be some chair squirming going on in here today. There'll be even more of it going on next week. There'll be some people uh, watching online this morning that's going to turn me off before I'm done. Because they're not going to like what I'm saying and they don't think it should be said in church. But check out what said in verse number 3 before I let you have your seat. It says that Jesus left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But notice this. He needed to go through Samaria. He needed to. And we need to hear this message this morning. Wave at a neighbor. Wave at them. Let them know that you love them and you appreciate them before you're seated this morning. I miss being able to fellowship. Amen. I miss fellowship. He needed to go through Samaria. I'm going to cut through all the normal niceties that I have to set up my messages because I just don't have time. 17 pages of notes is calling me. He needed to go through Samaria. And a better word for that is that he was compelled to go. Literally from the original Greek text, it describes being on an assignment from God. In other words, Jesus said, I have an urgency to go through Samaria. I am being drawn to go through Samaria. There's something that he can't avoid. I moved here 19 years ago. I had never been to this part of the country. I had never been north until then. I'd never been north of Morgantown. I'd only been there one time to visit another preacher that was in the hospital in Ruby Memorial. I had never been to this part of the country, but I felt compelled. I felt an assignment from the Lord. I felt like I had to come to this area. Something I couldn't avoid. And, and the reason that this is powerful in Jesus' story here in John chapter 4 was because in Jesus' time, Jesus and the Jews would not go through Samaria. The Bible makes it very clear very many times here that this was a Samaritan city and it was a Samaritan woman that he was going to talk to. Why would Jews not go through Samaria? Because Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated the Jews. And I have taught in the past, and I have preached in the past, that the reason that Jesus had to go through Samaria is because there was a broken woman that was going to be at that well, and that Jesus needed to meet her and heal her and minister to her. And that is true. And we know her story well. She was broken, and we know that why she was broken, right? We know that she was broken because of bad relationships. She had had one bad relationship after another bad relationship. By the way, that tells us, before I move on into my topic this morning, that if you have had a bad relationship after bad relationship after bad relationship, you will find also that you are a little bit broken. Bad relationships will leave you broken. However, the same answer applies to no matter how broken you are. And His name is Jesus. There is hope that you can be restored again. But relationships are one of the number one ways that we become broken and fractured in life. And she's had at least five bad relationships. She's had five failed relationships. And now she's got a live-in boyfriend. And that's not working out great for her either. 
And Jesus calls her out on this. Because God's not afraid to challenge us face to face with the Word of God and make us come to face to face with things that we need to change on the inside of us no matter how certain we are that we're right. No matter how much confidence you walked into this building with this morning that the way you feel is correct, God will get right up close and personal, get right in your face and challenge you and say, are you sure? Is this really what you think is true? Because God's word will be true and every man, say every, every man will be a liar. And I have found in my walk with God that there were times I was totally convinced I was okay. I was totally convinced that my thinking was correct. And the word of God challenged me to change my thinking. That's what I'm on a mandate to do this morning. This woman is broken in every way and she's hurting and she's filled with pain and she goes to a place called Jacob's Well in the city of Sychar. And she goes there at noontime because she figures that nobody else is going to be there and she won't have to talk and hear the chatter going on because she's done with it. See, sometimes you care about what other folks think of you and then there's other times when you're just done with it. This woman is done with the innuendos. She's done with seeing the raised eyebrows. She doesn't want anybody looking down on her anymore. So she figured that she would slip in at noontime when all the other ladies wouldn't be around gossiping about her. She's going to get her water and she's going to leave and go home. But when she gets to the well, and I'm going to try not to get emotional, she finds that Jesus is waiting on her. She doesn't know that that particular day that she had an appointment with God. And she was on God's agenda. And I don't know who I'm encouraging right now, but I want you to know that even though you might feel bottled up and banged around and broken and frustrated and fearful about your future, I want you to know that all sorts of issues can be going on on the inside of you, but God has not forgotten you. He knows exactly where you are. And the most amazing part of this story, I skipped for 20 years of preaching it. The most amazing part of this story is that you can see from this story that you are on God's agenda whether you realize it or not. God cares about you this much. God has compassion to come and meet with you, to heal you and relieve you of the pain that you're going through. Because what I love about Jesus is He got here before she did. Did you ever notice that? He didn't meet this woman there and just strike up a conversation. The Bible says he got to the city, he was tired, he sat down and waited. He didn't leave until she showed up. Is there anybody in this church that is glad that God will wait on you? That even when you are running late, God won't get up and leave because He loves you enough, has enough compassion. Listen to me. This teaches us a principle that I could preach an entire message on. I wrote it down in my notes months and months and months ago, but I'm going to reveal it to you right here. Maybe one day God will let me preach it. Just because you're not on God's schedule doesn't mean you don't have an appointment. (laughs) You who may have got out of 
bed on a Tuesday and not planned on meeting God. But when you showed up where you showed up, you'll find him sitting there waiting on you. And you didn't know that you was on his schedule, but you haven't already had an appointment for you. And you didn't know that you was going to come in contact with a life-changing moment. This right now could be that moment for somebody in this building. See, sometimes we feel like God runs out on us. When we mess up bad enough, we feel like God beats feet and runs away from us because He's holy. When our life is caught in a cycle of sin, God just forgets about us and writes us off. God just breaks down and gives up on us. We don't believe sometimes that God will sit down on the well and wait for us to bring our broken self to where He is and be loving enough to talk to us and heal us when we show up. I know the Bible says they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. But the fact of the matter is, the Lord will wait on you because He loves you that much. He'll wait on you to come back home. He'll wait on you to get your life ready to change. He'll wait on you to draw closer to Him. He'll wait on you to get all in. He'll wait on you to come to the altar. He'll wait on you to say a prayer of forgiveness. He'll wait on you to say, I'm done with that lifestyle and I want to walk the way God wants me to walk. God will wait because that's what lovers do. And He's the lover of your soul. He'll wait for you to fully commit. And He won't give up to, on you until you do. So Jesus is waiting there and I've always talked that he had, he needed to go through Samaria because he had to heal that woman. And I don't back up from that preaching. But I believe this issue is deeper than this. I believe there's an assignment on the inside of Jesus to go through Samaria, not just to heal a woman, but to heal a city. And I believe that he's dealing with an issue that not only was raising its head in Jesus' day, but is raising its ugly head still in our world today, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And they hated each other so much that even though Jesus was on his way from Judah down to Galilee, and the shortest distance to get there would go right through the middle of Samaria, Jews wouldn't do it. They would go around the city of Samaria Wasting time because they wouldn't step foot on Samaritan soil because they hated Samaritans that much and the Samaritans hated them as well. Jews, I'm going to use some uncomfortable language. Y'all okay? Look at your neighbor right now because they'll be squirming a little bit. Read your, church, read your history of these people. Jews called Samaritans ugly names like dogs and half-breeds. They referred to them as less than human. They were lesser people. They hated one another even though they believed in the same God. They came from the same lineage. Ain't it amazing how people can hate each other just based on how they look or where they live? And they're different not in design but in experience. And it will cause you to hate some people, even though they're a lot like you. But just because of where they grew up or what their nationality is, you can feel some kind of way about them. This hate between the Jews and the Samaritans was 750 years old. 
when Jesus went to Samaria's well that day. And they hated each other for no other reason than they had two different races. Samaritans didn't hate Bill the Jew, Bob the Jew, Susan the Jew. They hated all Jews. Uh, the, 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 the Samaritans didn't hate the Jews that had dark hair or hazel eyes. They hated all the Jews. When you can hate a group of people based nothing upon their personality, their characteristics, or who they are as a person, or who they worship as God. But you judge them and hate them based totally on where they're from or the color of their skin. You're not just sideways with a whole group of people. I'm going to show you this morning, you're sideways with the Lord God Almighty. Uh, it's going to get quiet in here. It's going to, oh, this is one of them sermons. Go ahead and get your stickies out. Go ahead. You'll be squirming for this over with. There are very few topics in today's world, especially in America, that makes the cancel culture raise up like racism. Because the news, every day it seems like, is full of people who are gaining attention for all the wrong reasons. If they have done anything or said anything that another group of people perceive as racist, their life is changed forever. It's called the cancel culture. That when we perceive that somebody has said something that is a little bit maybe perhaps racist, that we cancel that person. In just the past few years, the issue of race relations in America has seen cities burn to the ground. People have gotten hurt. Police officers and citizens have been killed. Police officials have been fired. Some of them have resigned. The world uh, in that we used to know has become complete chaos. This is a big issue. It is an important issue. Our nation is nearly broken. Yeah, there's some good things happening in our nation, but that doesn't mean our nation's not hurting. We're fighting one another. We're turning on one another. We are tuning each other out and refusing to listen to one another. We are demonizing entire groups of people. That's what cancel culture does. We're talking past each other. And we are fighting not against a common enemy, but against one another. And Jesus said a kingdom that's divided against itself can never stand. We're divided in our nation. We're divided in our cities. We're divided in our homes. And we're divided in our houses of worship. And that's where I preach. And that's where I put my time in. And that's what I care most about because as the church goes, the world goes. And we need to get ourselves right. I can't do a thing about the world, but we need to change the church. The enemy is working overtime to divide and conquer. We are fighting political agendas and the media slant that is totally, absolutely, 110% destined to keep you mad at somebody. Hear me when I preach this morning. The media has no objective other than to get you riled up. And you will find that group of media that, make, that preaches what you want to hear and will make you upset over what it is that they want you to be upset about. 
That's why when I was growing up a little bo- as a little boy, the news was just a report. They showed you a screen and said, this happened. Deal with it. Somebody was shot. Somebody went to jail. Do with that information whatever you need to. But now we have identity politics and identity media where there are now personalities that are associated. Fox News leans this way and CNN leans this way. And depending on which way you lean, you listen to those talking heads that don't report facts. They report opinions. Because they are determined to keep you mad at somebody. We are fighting for our faith. The book of Jude says to contend for the faith. We are at war to hold on to the gospel in a world that is trying its best to come apart at the seams. We are fighting and the world is desperate for answers. And I submit for your approval today that the answers are not found in social groups or agendas that are promoted and pimped out by the media. The answers are not found on a political platform, whether it's a donkey or or something else. Listen to me. Jesus is the only answer. And we need to realize what the disciples realized, what Peter realized. Where can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We have to be helpful to submit our agendas and our perspectives to the Word of God and say, God, what are the answers? What does the Bible say about these problematic times? People think you shouldn't talk about topics like racism in the church. But God did. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go all the way back to the very beginning. God set the standard that people should not hate other people just based on their race. Look at Genesis chapter 12. The Lord God said to Abram, Leave your country from your family and your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth, red, yellow, black, and white, will be blessed. Did you see what God just did? He said, if anybody don't like you just because of what country you're from, I'm going to deal with them. If somebody don't like you, not because you got angry or you kicked their dog or you ran over their mailbox, if they don't like you just because you're a Jew, I'm going to have an issue with them myself. And that is a principle that I'm going to talk about today because it's not just a principle that applies to the Jewish folks. It's a principle that God didn't make any of us to dislike, distrust, or dismantle other folks based on the color of their skin or where it is that they're from. And if God is concerned with it, why does it seem like the only place that we ever see this topic dealt with is in the news? 
Churches won't talk about this stuff. And that's part of the problem the world has today because those of us who has access to the answers don't want to discuss the topics that are most hurting the world around us, which leaves only the people who talk about it are the ones who are the least qualified to do so because they don't love Jesus. I don't think very many of us are uneducated about the facts of racism. I think most of us understand most of the facts of racism. And they're uncomfortable. And it makes people have one of two responses. When you start talking about racism, because it's so uncomfortable, because it makes us squirm in our seats, most folks end up with one of two responses. We avoid it or we get angry. Depending on what side you lean, you just avoid talking about it because you're not comfortable discussing it or you get angry over it because it hurts so much is there a better response than avoidance and anger remember this entire series has been pointing us to realize that you and I are not supposed to react the way everybody else does so is there a better way to respond to this problem of racism than avoidance and anger well let's consult the word of God February is in America called Black History Month. And I've heard many white people through the years say, why do we need a Black History Month? Because all the rest of the history is white, white history. Hey, I'm stand up here. I, it's going to get quiet in here. Yeah, how quiet it got. So we got one month where we emphasize. We don't just talk about black history. You want to talk about white history? Go ahead. February, go ahead. Talk about some white history. But you're going to get that the rest of the year too. So we have made an intentional plan to study black history in, uh, in February. But I'm going to deal with some black history that they don't... I'm not going to talk about George Washington Carver and Rosa Parks. 2019 Pew Research Center reported that a majority of Americans say that race relations in the United States are bad. And of those, about 7 in 10 say that things are getting even worse. When you look at the Oxford English Dictionary, it defines racism as prejudice, discrimination, antagonism directed against someone of a different race based on the belief that another race is superior. Now by this definition, if you mistreat people of a particular race or you favor people of a particular race, that's called racism. And there are different degrees of racism. We find such attitudes, if we go back in history, I can talk about this stuff freely because I'm whitey-white-white. I know if you're just hearing me on the DVD, you think I'm a brother. I did my uh, lineage, my background, uh, my, my ancestry DNA test. Didn't none of me come from Africa. I was shocked. I thought for sure I'd have a little bit, maybe like a three percentile or something. I thought for sure, because when people just hear me on DVDs or they just hear me preach, they always think, that's a brother. No, in fact... I am white as the driven snow. I'm from the European area and, 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 and Cherokee Indians. So I'm not entirely all white. Uh, I had Cherokee Indian princess uh, in my lineage. Uh, and so I've got some Native American in me, a little bit of tent. But I was shocked some of me didn't come from over in Africa a little bit. But I'm going to talk this morning about white America. Anglo-Saxons. They first landed in a new world. 
And the European explorers characterized the Indians who lived here as heathens. They considered their race and culture to be inferior. They called them savages. Many claimed that such people could be transformed by the introduction of Christianity and European cultures. So we tried to church them up. What we were really doing was making an excuse for us to run roughshod over them and use the church as an excuse to do it. Many of, us who, who, many, many of us who live in today's America don't know that many that supported the enslavement of Africans also viewed them as inferior to white folks. Even in churches, Africans were considered intellectually and morally inferior to whites. Some declared that whites did not descend from the apes. But Africans did. These horrific claims were used to justify the system of slavery that enslaved millions of Africans. Many slaveholders convinced themselves that slaves were inferior and were actually better off in bondage than they were on their own in Africa. Many slaves came from West Africa where their own tribal leaders would capture them and sell them for profit. By 1860, the United States was divided into slave states and free states. And in 1860, there were almost 4 million African slaves on our continent. I want to give you a perspective by walking you through some really quick lowlights of history. On Sunday, we're used to emphasizing highlights. I'd like to give you some lowlights. I can't go deep because I don't have time, but let me give you a few. I've got 17 pages of notes I'm going to skim through. Slavery lasted about 100 years legally. Segregation lasted almost 200. From the inception of our nation in 1776 right up until the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which abolished what was called the Jim Crow laws. Uh, for those of you that don't know, because I assume that some of you don't, Jim Crow laws were the laws that was kept in the land. After it was illegal to keep slaves, we just changed laws to keep black folks living like slaves. It's quiet in here. I, I thought I might have somebody amen in me. Uh, so, so it was illegal to uh, own a slave, but it was legal to discriminate against black folks. Keep black people out of certain institutions and places and restaurants and churches. Black folks had to sit in the back of the bus. They couldn't use the same water fountain as white people. They couldn't go into the stores the same way black people did. 188 years to be exact since the passing of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. And during that time, black people were considered three-fifths of a white person. It was in the Constitution. They were stripped of their families. They were taken away from mothers and fathers. Their children were taken away from them. And they, parents, was removed from their children and sold into slavery. Racism persists still to this day. And for us to ignore it and act like it's not a reality is not only disingenuous, it's unchristlike. For us to ignore it, and the pain that it still causes folks today is not just us being phony and burying our heads in the sand. It's anti-Christianity. And that's why I have to talk to you about this this morning because even in the church today, there's still racism. 
A recent study showed this, and I couldn't believe I was blown away. 81% of America's Protestant churches are composed of one racial group. 81% of America's churches today have nobody of a different color. So if you go in a black church, it's all black. If you go in a white church, it's all white. That's sad. Dr. Martin Luther King was the one who said Sunday is the most segregated day of the week. And it's still that way after all these years? That's not what his dream was. So I'm going to skip through several pages of notes, just get down to the bottom of this. Racism and the Bible. The Bible clearly perform, uh, condemns all forms of racism and views every person as equally valued. So there's six facts that I want you to leave here with today. Okay? I want to re-educate you. Six facts from the Bible that you need to know. Number one, we were all created by God. Go back to Genesis chapter 1 where God created man in his own image and in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created him. Every person is created intentionally by God and in his own divine image. Therefore, every person is sacred. Every person is valuable. Every form of racism is to be rejected because it goes against the plan of God. And by the way, I've met racists in every color. I have met all colors of the rainbow who were racist against other people groups. So I want you to understand that we are all guilty and equally held to the same standard to reject all forms of racism. Number two, if you want to know why this bothers God so badly, because we were all descendants of the same two parents. Every human being comes from Adam and Eve. As a result, look what Genesis 3 and 20 says. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. All. In other words, there wasn't a white couple named Adam and Eve and a black couple named Shaniqua and Tyrone. And another uh, couple of Asian, no, 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 no. One couple gave us all of this. All the colors of the rainbow came out of that one couple. And let's go back to that couple. Are you ready to go with me? Let's go back to the garden. And I'm sorry to rock your world. But Adam and Eve, despite what you saw in Sunday school, was not blonde hair, blue eyes, frolicking naked in the garden. More than likely... Adam and Eve was brown. Maybe I got a little bit in me after all. Because the area where we are pretty confident that the Garden of Eden came from is the modern day Iraq. And you don't see a whole lot of me in Iraq. So probably Adam and Eve was more brown than they were like me. And the rest of us came from that DNA. By the way, get over to Moses' day, and Moses goes down to Ethiopia and marries a sister. And if you think you find blonde hair, blue eyed honeys in Ethiopia, you don't know your geography. Moses goes down to Ethiopia and marries a sister, dark skinned, yeah. Yeah, a sister from Ethiopia. 
She wasn't even Carmel. She was a sister. He brings her home, and you remember that Moses' sister Miriam gets mad at him, spoke up again. She said, we shouldn't be mixing races. It's the first interracial marriage in the Bible. So God gives Miriam a case of leprosy. Leprosy turns the skin white. God said, you want, you want to prefer white? I'll give you a whole bunch of white. <laughs> you, 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 you want to get sideways against people of color? I will make you white as the driven snow. Caleb, Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, who gave Moses that wonderful advice that enabled and positioned Moses to be the deliverer of, of Israel that he was. Anybody ever heard of Rahab, the great-great-grandmother of David? Anybody ever hear of Ruth, the grandmother of David? All dark-skinned heroes of the Bible. Solomon was a dark-skinned brother. All of them dark-skinned heroes. By the way, the very lineage of Jesus Christ our Lord was Rahab and Caleb and Solomon dark skinned people bringing the deliverer of the world to the world and we want to judge folks and this was proven to be a scientific fact they did a famous study called the human genome project you remember that I remember when they were going through it and they did a genetic study that on the cellular level Every human being on the planet is 99.9% alike. 99.9% alike. And we're going to fuss at each other? We're going to hate people over 0.1%? No, no, no. we got to do better than this. Number three, every person is equally valuable to God. Paul said it. Paul, Listen, Paul, he had backbone about him. Paul was a little man. History tells us he was a small in stature, but he was bold. Listen to what he said. There is neither Jew nor Greek, Galatians 3 and 28. There is neither slave nor free. There's not male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, you got to know when Paul spoke this up, he was talking to a bunch of Jews that was convinced that Greeks were unclean. They were inferior. Does that sound familiar? We've had this problem since time began. Some claim that God made Gentiles so that there would be firewood in hell. And Paul stood up and told the Jews, you ain't any better than they are. You're not any greater in God's eyes than the Greeks are. We're all equally valuable. Number four, every person is welcome at the cross. You don't think racism is a problem? And getting folks saved? Read Jonah. Jonah didn't want those Ninevites. Oh yeah, read your Bible. He said, I don't want to go preach a revival in Nineveh because them Ninevites will get saved. And I don't want them going to heaven. If that's not racism in its purest form, what is it? And that came from a preacher's mouth. Uh God loves all sinners. He wants everyone saved. The Bible says God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say he did it for white sinners or black sinners or yellow sinners or brown sinners. He said all sinners need Jesus. 
Bible says that the Lord in 2 Peter 3 and 9 is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, when we're in Christ, we are one spirit, one Lord, and one baptism. Why? Because of number five. And I, I, I get excited about this one. Why? Why are we all equal at the cross and welcome at the cross? Because there's no segregation in heaven. I'm about to drop some knowledge on you. Ready? Here's the thing. Did you know that on planet earth, white-skinned people are the minority? I know it ain't like that in your neighborhood. I'm talking about the whole planet. Over the whole planet, white-skinned people are the minority. Brown is the most popular skin color on the planet. And here's what I figured out. I figured out that when we get to heaven, according to Revelation 7 and 9, it says around the throne of God there's going to be a great multitude of the people with no mark in number for every kindred, every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. And if white folk are the minority here right now, can you imagine how much more it's going to be like that in heaven? And if we are uncomfortable mixing with people of color, when we get to heaven, we're going to get real uncomfortable. Hear me, my white brothers and sisters. If you can't go to church with them here, how are you going to worship around the throne with them in glory? So I determined a long time ago that for our church, we're going to be a little picture of heaven because that's what makes God smile. And we're going to welcome all nationalities and all creeds and all tribes and all tongues because that's what heaven's going to look like. Number six, and this is the last point I'm going to make. We are called to love people with the heart of Jesus. God's word is very blunt. He said in James 2 and 9, write this scripture down, James 2 and 9, he is so blunt. He says, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. You know what partiality means? It means you treat one person better than you do another person. And God says, that is sinful. And I'll judge you for it. You don't have, you don't have to wait for cancel culture to catch you. You don't have to wait for the Twitter nerds to get on your case. God says, if you're going to do it, if you're going to show favoritism and partiality, I will judge you. Jesus told us, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do that to them. Matthew 7 and 12. We are to, Matthew 22 and 39, love our neighbor as ourself. So with all this information, how is a believer supposed to handle all these crazy issues that we got in our face every day? Because we're not permitted to join the cancel culture. Because we have other instructions. And our instructions are 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 18. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself. Stop right there and look at me. Thank God. Thank God because I wasn't worthy to be reconciled to him. I haven't done one thing here that negates all the other ugly that I committed 
There are stuff, I know y'all don't want to hear a preacher say this on Sunday morning. Maybe some of you will never listen to me preach another sermon. But I still do stuff that disqualifies me from being reconciled with him. I am saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost. I speak with other tongues. I pray daily. I live righteously. I believe in holiness. But I still commit sinful acts that disqualifies me from entering the gates of heaven. Thank God that he has reconciled a brother like me to himself. Thank you, Jesus. But because, because he reconciled us, look, he has given us not the ordination of cancel culture, but the ministry of reconciliation. So I came here this morning to call every believer in this church into the ministry. This is our challenge. This is our charge. Every single one of us here have a part in the Great Commission. But today we have permission from the Lord to be entering into the ministry of reconciliation. So I want to take that to heart today. I want us to realize that in order for us to be truly fulfilling the Great Commission, we got to be ministers of reconciliation. And what does that mean? Because it's not what you think. Can I get real with you? I know I've been going 43 minutes, but can I get real with you? Because this is important. This is important. The Bible says go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation. That means every ethnos, every ethnicity. That means every kindred, tribe, race, tongue, and people are to be preached the gospel. Jesus was compelled to go to Samaria. Not just to heal this one woman, but to heal the whole city. To deal with an issue of racism. The Jews won't take the gospel into that city because they hate the people. If Jesus felt compelled to deal with it, why does the church run away from it? We're called to a ministry of reconciliation. We're to be ministers of reconciling people to Him. You cannot preach an effective gospel if you have hate in your heart. And how can our message be received if we don't love? Reconciliation is a must. We need to feel compelled to heal people. we got to see it as an assignment from God. It's got to become our thing that we do. And for too long, the church has been silent. The church has stood by and said nothing and done nothing. Being a minister of reconciliation means that I'm called to do more. I'm going to get on you, white folks. You ready? Well, I'm not a racist. I don't have those feelings. I never owned a slave. I'm glad you laughed, sis, because you're the only one with me. See, being a minister of reconciliation means I'm called to move toward healing what's wrong, not just ignoring it because it don't affect me. God wants us to realize that we are called to minister to the hurting. And some people are hurting differently than you are. Some people have pain that you don't, that you don't have, nor do you understand. But that does not stop the mandate of you being a minister of reconciliation. The Bible says, for God so loved the world, not just parts of the world, the parts of the world that look like you, act like you, talk like you, and believe like you. He loves the whole human race. He loves diversity. 
In other words, when we start talking about racial reconciliation, we're not talking about losing our identity as different races because God made us different. He loves us to keep our distinctives. God doesn't want us to lose our variety. He's not asking us because He's the one that created the variety. And what happens is the variety runs all to its separate corners and the blacks go here and the whites go here and the Asians go here and the Hispanics go here and we keep our cultures to ourselves. But that's not what God wants. He wants us to reconcile with each other. And because of that, we miss the combined explosion of when all the gifts come together. Because God's given each people group divine gifts. When the church finally comes together and we experience the full and all the gifts have been placed in the right place, we'll stop trying to do it separately and start trying to do it together. But hear me, this has to start off on a personal level. What do I mean by that? I mean it's got to become relational. You got to move outside of your circle, reach for relationships outside of the people that you are normally in relationship with. Jesus said, we're going to go to Samaria. I would have loved to have seen the disciples' faces. He said, uh, us Jewish boys are going to go down to Samaria. And their mouth would have dropped. And they would have probably been over in a corner talking amongst themselves going, Jesus has lost his mind. Hey, Peter, you're always talking. Go talk to him. He wants us to go down to the Samaritan city of Sychar. Them people are half-breeds. They're dogs. They're the scum of the earth. They have the lowest of the low. We're not supposed to step foot. What would our family think? What would our friends say if they knew we were in Sychar? We can't do it. Jesus said, we're going because I'm compelled. i got to obey my father. I got to go. And he said, when I go there, I'm not just going to go and walk through the city holding a Black Lives Matter sign. He said, I'm going to go there and enter into a relationship with a woman who's going to unlock the relationship for the whole city with me. He said, I'm going to go there and have a conversation and talk to somebody that folks think I shouldn't even be talking to. I'm going to go down there and sit down and wait for somebody who is hurting and I'm going to find out why they are hurting and why they feel ostracized and why they feel marginalized and why they go through what they go through. I'm not just going to do a march through the city and call it a day. I'm going to get invested in their pain because I'm compelled to go into the city. And she asked Jesus this question. Listen to how she said it. You've never seen this before. She said, how is it that you, being a Jew, are asking a drink of me? And besides, you don't have no cup. How are you going to drink this? Jesus said, I'm going to put my Jewish lips on your Samaritan cup. Because I'm about to enter into a real relationship with you. I'm not just going to play like one on the media so that I get my name on the news that I have woke and I got some kind of status in the black community. No, I'm going to get in a relationship with you and I'm going to sit down and break bread with you. What was Jesus doing? He was putting a face on race. He was putting a personality on race. He was making racism not an abstract idea but people and saying this these people are suffering and these people need me.
Jesus said, I've got to put a face on this. I've got to go to Samaria. I've got to meet a woman who my people say I shouldn't even talk to. And I've got to drink from her cup. I've got to talk to her about her life. I'm going to get real with you. Some of y'all going to get mad at me. And it won't be the black folk. Because I've got to take, Jesus said, I've got to do it at the expense of other people who look like me. Feeling a certain kind of way about me. I got to go even if it risks them calling me names. I got to go even if it costs me some friends. I got to do it at the expense of folks talking about me. Church, I want to challenge you. Take racism out of the political arena and put it in a personal arena. Because that is the first step in reconciliation. Second thing I want to challenge you to do, and I'm going deeper. If we're going to heal racism, especially in the church... We have to be intentional about getting a new perspective. What do I mean? We are all victims of our own perspective. You only know what you know. Facts. Our perspectives are shaped by our individual experiences. Our upbringing. Our families. Our parents. Our education. Our surroundings. Our society, what we have been exposed to, what has happened to us personally. Perspective is what we see. Never assume your perspective is the right one. Because that's only what I'm seeing because of where I've been. And it's shaped by a lot of things that another person has not experienced. I thought when I was growing up, everybody had outhouses. I thought it was normal for Grandma on, Sunday, on Saturday evening to let me pick Sunday soup. I'd go out in the yard and pick the chicken. She'd pick that chicken up by its neck, wring it until its head popped off. Chicken would hit the ground, run around the barn yard without a head on it. Grandma would pluck it, drain it, put it in a pot because she wouldn't cook on Sunday. And in a pot of dumplings, it would sit there on a coal stove, and that's what we would have for Sunday dinner. I thought that was normal. I told that story to my wife. Her eyes got as big as saucers. I'd never eat chicken again, she said. But from where I came from, totally normal. Everybody ate chicken that way. Everybody got potty trained outdoors. I thought that was normal. Come to find out, I was living on the frontier. I didn't know it because I never came out of the holler. And everybody in the holler had the same experience I had. It was my perspective. It was my life experience. You realize that when arguments happen between people, it's because they won't see things through another eye. And you can't have reconciliation unless somebody gets intentional about walking in the shoes of somebody else. Husbands and wives who get divorced usually is because one or both of them refuse to walk a mile in the other one's shoes. She says you're mean, he says you're cranky, and the other one never takes time to realize why the other one acts the way they do. And so we get divorced and we call it irreconcilable differences. And all that means is I refuse to see things the way you see them. Look at the detail about how this power of perspective, Jesus said, or the Bible says, a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And it says his disciples was in the city. You know why Jesus did that? I'll tell you why. White people, buckle up. 
Jesus sent his disciples into the city of Sychar where there were no other Jews. Jesus sits on the well. He says, boys, run down there to Kroger. I want some Twinkies. Go down in the sidecar and get some groceries. And there's no other Jews anywhere in the city. Now, do you know why this don't register with you white people? Because as a white person, you have rarely gone into a store and felt some kind of way because folks was looking at you funny. But every person of color sitting here listening to this knows exactly what I'm talking about. And if you don't think people qualify us as race, even to this day, by races, even to this day, then why is it that when white people talk about their friends, they don't ever say, me and Billy, my white friend. But we quick to say, me and my black friend. Because we want to qualify everything by race so we can make sure people know, I'm not a racist, I'm not a racist, I got, I got a black friend back home. You're quiet, it got in here. I told you it's going to get uncomfortable. We don't ever qualify and say, I got a white friend. Well, of course you do. Look at you. Why did he send his disciples, his Jewish disciples, into a Samaritan Kroger to buy groceries? Because he wanted to give them a new perspective. And the only way you can get a different perspective is if you walk in somebody else's shoes. Otherwise, you'll never get a perspective like that. I wasn't even looked at differently at all. But when Jared graduated basic training in Georgia, I went into Walmart. Me and Hannah, my white, snow white Hannah, standing in the women's section. That Walmart was packed. I'm looking around, all around. I didn't say nothing, but Hannah said, what are you looking at? And I said, nothing. She said, I know, Daddy. We're the only white people in here. <laughs> and you know what she said? She said, that's how Jay Lynn and Ashley feel all the time. See, we don't see it because it's not our perspective. Ministers of reconciliation make it a point to say, just because I don't see it doesn't make it any less real. Listen, I don't have time to get into it, but the church has taught some crazy theology through the years too. They would teach that if you baptized a slave because they wanted to keep slaves slaves, but they wanted to get them saved. And if you call it a gospel, they would preach a gospel that, that said you could get saved and I'd baptize you and you'd go to heaven, but you can't not be a slave. Even though Paul said there is now no free or slave, they, they said, no, that part doesn't count for you. Did you know that up until 1970 in the United States of America, a black woman nor a black man could go to a seminary and get trained in Bible college? 1970! I was three years from being born! And you couldn't enter a seminary and be taught to preach the gospel. So what happened over time is that the Bible became known as a white man's religion. I know this is strong, but this is facts. Because it was used as a tool to keep black people on the plantation. They wanted them to go to heaven when they died, but they didn't want to get them off the plantation. And that's why you had the emergence of the black evangelical churches, because they wasn't welcome in white churches. So I want to challenge you, since the church has been one of the greatest systems that kept racism going in our land, that it stops now. Because the land needs a healing. It's a serious problem.
Oh, and by the way, I've also heard comments like this. Well, there ain't nobody that's alive today that's ever been slaves. Let me, let me bring a perspective for that too because I want your perspective to change. If something happens for 200 years and it's baked into all the systems of society, can you reverse that in just 40 or 50 years? Come on and give it an honest answer. You can't. It's impossible. If a woman lives with an abusive man for 30 years and suddenly she gets divorced, do you think you'll meet her six months later and she'll be healed? She'll kick around problems for the rest of her days because of what she went through. And in order for racial reconciliation to happen, there has to be an intentionality of white people to step into the shoes of those that have been wronged and hurt and marginalized and reconcile them. What do I mean by this? That means that we have to stop saying stuff like, I don't understand why I have to pay for the mistakes of my forefathers. That's a crazy question, right? Why do black people have to pay for their mistakes? Well, I didn't do anything wrong. I haven't owned a slave a day in my life. Look at me. I ain't had a plantation. I ain't put anybody out to work in the cotton fields. I didn't do it. But I have to say, even though it wasn't me, I can understand what they're going through. I'm generally a good person. I'm definitely not a racist. I try to pe treat everybody as good as I can. But reconciliation requires that I listen to why they're hurting. And I'll give a perfect example of that and then I'll shut up. And nobody can argue with it. And, it, and I'll give it to you. The answer to all of this is two simple words. Jesus Christ. Because before any of my white brothers and sisters say, well, I didn't do anything wrong. I don't owe them anything. What did Jesus do wrong? Did Jesus deserve what he went through? Did Jesus deserve to take your penalty? He took your guilt, your shame, your filthiness, and your pain. Because the Bible said we have been reconciled to God. Because Jesus took our pain. And then he called us to be ministers of reconciliation. So what that means is, I may not be guilty of racism. I may not be guilty of holding anybody back or down. But as a minister of reconciliation, I have to, by mandate, take on their pain and find out what can we do to heal you where you hurt. I don't understand it. I haven't experienced it. I don't know what it's like to be checked out when I go to in the store. I don't know what it's like to be profiled and pulled over by police officers. I've never experienced it a day in my life. Don't know what it's like, but tell me about your pain and I'll tell you about a Jesus that can take that pain away and will make everything better in your life. That's what ministers of reconciliation do. We don't diminish people because they have a different experience than we do. I didn't gain any fans today, but I probably made a few enemies. But this is gospel, and this is why America is hurting the way it's hurting, and this is the pain that brothers and sisters in the Lord are going through, and it's the pain that people who yet need to hear the gospel are experiencing. So promise of victory, God told us this year that we're to be uncommonly kind. We can't be like everybody else. We have to tackle hard subjects because the devil is using them to keep us divided. We have to talk about things that make us uncomfortable because God wants us to 
get past those so we can be new creatures in Christ Jesus. I love you. If I, w- if I didn't love you and care about you and want to see this land healed, I would never preach this. I promise you, I would have had a message on John chapter 4 that would have made the Lord bump, jump, and feel something in here. I mean, we'd been leaving Jesus tracks on the ceiling, swinging from the chandeliers. Man, I would have really preached this thing hot. But I don't know if I would have healed anybody. I want to heal your heart today. I can't do it, but I want to invite you to a Jesus Christ that can heal your heart today. I want you to start looking at other people differently. I know I preached way too long. I apologize. I told you I had 17 pages. No, skip 15 pages. I only preached two of them. I had to get them two. God loves us all. There's no segregation in heaven. When we get there, I'll be the minority. I don't know how I'm going to feel about that. I know we're going to have some good church, though. Y'all think I preach like a brother when I'm here. Y'all ought to hear me preach when I'm in a black church. <laughs> we, <laughs> when I got a ham and B3 back of me, man, 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 woo! I know we're going to have some powerful church services. But I want to make sure we take as many people with us as possible. Red, yellow, black, and white. They're all precious in his sight. Make it a point. Listen, I'm not calling you a racist. I don't believe you are. I don't, I don't believe you are. But make it a point to pray that God would intentionally show you other people's pain. That even though you're not guilty of the racism, you realize that what their experience and their perspective is, is different than yours. You don't think eating squirrel brains is normal. I grew up on them. I'm six foot tall and wear a size 15 because I eat squirrel brains. I was the country as cornbread. And some of you wouldn't even eat a squirrel, a rabbit. You won't even eat chicken, you think it's too backwoods. Everybody's perspective is different. Realize that, but we're all created equal in his light, in his sight, and he loves us all the same. Can we give the Lord a hand clap of prayer? Go, go ahead and break the tension in here. I hope somebody still loves me. I appreciate you all. I know, I know that uh, I preached for a long time. I apologize, so I'm just going to get out of your way and let the uh, video play. God bless you. I love you. Uh, next week's going to be uncomfortable, too, because we're going to talk about the spirit of offense. So, you know, maybe, maybe wear a little lighter jacket next week so your sweat won't be as bad. But I, I love you. God bless you.